Yes, good morning, everybody. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Whenever it is that you get your podcast fix, my name is Derek Smith, and this is the Truth or Derek Show, or the Truth or Derek Podcast. Call it whatever you want. You know how we roll around here. Good, bad, no, no matter what. Come on, hit me with it. Uh, as always, got a ton of stuff to get to today. A little bit of follow-up, because uh, we had a heavy episode um last week with Franz and Josh, and uh, we're obviously rolling ahead with a little bit more of the legal stuff, but it'll be a little bit different today because um, the great Matthew Mangino is going to join us, and uh, he's a little bit different. A, he's a prosecutor. Most of our other people were defense people, but uh, he's also a a death penalty, uh, somewhat of an expert. He wrote an amazing book on it, so we're going to talk everything death penalty and prosecution with him. So uh, yeah, that's going to be awesome. And you know what else is awesome? Taking your podcasting career to the next level with www.podstars.net. Now, and Mr. Mangino, also on Podstars. You know we only hire out of the the best pool out there on the internet. So Podstars is a talented and passionate community that will give you the opportunity to interview top professionals from a variety of industries where they will share their insights and experiences with your audience. Plus, everyone will have access to the exclusive celebrity catalog featuring some of the best in the business, both new and established. It is also free to join. As a member of Podstars, you can choose from the catalog of celebrities to interview on your podcast. And if interested, for an additional monthly fee of only $8.99 a month, you can upgrade to the community plan, a completely different and exciting catalog full of some of the best experts and professionals in their fields today. As well as access to everybody in the whole Podstars universe, it's a great way to invest in your podcast as you will save time and money by being able to book guests from one platform with an expansive catalog that is constantly being added to. You know, I work on that too. We do that every day. But again, look no farther than the great Matthew Mangino, who we're going to talk to in a bit. So yes, why wait? Join www.podstars.net now. And I start exploring all that they have to offer. You will not want to miss out on this amazing opportunity to elevate your podcasting career and be a part of the exciting community. Nailed it. Yeah, we got a ton of stuff to get to. I got a lot of uh, a lot of really cool feedback from last week when we had uh, Josh and Franz on. Uh, you know, it was my first time having two people on the show at the same time. And I, I think it went really well. I know a lot of the feedback was like... Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, Derek, I didn't hear you at all. I, I was in there, but listen, you know, I mean, we've talked to a lot of lawyers on the show and especially defense attorneys. Like, that's what you want in a defense attorney. Because, like, if you had if you needed him in court and he went on like that and the, the prosecution, sorry, Matthew, and the prosecution didn't get a word in edgewise. Like, I, I'm hearing W's all day long. You're You're going home a free man. <laughs> So yeah, a lot of that was like they loved it. About all the all the comments that came in was like, oh wow, those guys, man, that was heavy, blah blah blah. We didn't hear you at all, but it was great. So <laughs> maybe in the future we'll try to do more where two people just talk back and forth, and I'll just sit in the background going, hmm, yeah, interesting. <laughs> what else is going on? Uh, also, speaking of the last episode, I, I don't know if I touched on this. I, I threw in that little filler episode in the middle. About some of the download numbers, more so the the different areas. I know, um, what was it two two or three weeks ago? Uh, we were blowing up in like uh, Oklahoma, uh, Virginia, some in New York, a little bit California, Colorado, obviously. Shout out to Christy, and uh, the last one blew up in uh, New Jersey. Uh, the number one, uh, Arizona two, Texas three. But also uh, more amazing, I don't know where my Oklahoma people, (laughs) 
I either did something to I must have done something. I apologize to the great state of Oklahoma. Please come back. <laughs> but more interesting, I mean, obviously in the UK, uh, shout out to Adrian. We know uh, she's always spreading the word over there. We had downloads in Spain and uh, a lot of them. So if, uh, you know, reach out to me, please. Any way you like. Uh, the best place is obviously on Twitter at Derek Vampire Slayer or by email uh, uh, podstars with a Z dot connect at outlook.com or just google the truth or Derek podcast and anything that comes up there you can uh, you can get a hold of me pretty easily but especially if you download it in spain i just uh, i'm curious did you did you like franz did you like josh or me or hate them and like me or hate me and like them it, it, whatever case please just uh, reach out to me say what's up as always ask me anything you want if you got questions for the guests or you want to talk to somebody or you got a question for me or you just want us to ramble on about something, which is pretty much what podcasting is. Again, just uh, reach out. Let me know. So, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of different downloads. It's growing in a whole bunch of different spots, and uh, that's exciting. So we continue to reach new people in new areas. My Spanish is not good. I know I mentioned uh, – I'll get into that another time when I don't have a guest because uh, I'm dying to talk to Matthew Mangino. When I was in I, – I, I was in the Dominican Republic about a month ago. And uh, another, I'll give you guys a word of advice because obviously uh, vacations a hoot. Uh, don't try to get not to get ocean water in your ear because I think I mentioned last time. I, I don't know if, if it came across different. If it, I thought it sounded different, I like I had like an ear infection from ocean water in my ear for like a month, and uh, putting drops in it and all that it was a huge pain in the ass. Like, I, it, you know how hard it is to hold a drop in your ear, especially when you sit there with your head sideways for a half an hour, and the second you sit up, it all runs out. Like the human head. I, you know, this, I'm not a science person, but I'm pretty sure the human head is is, is not meant to go sideways. You got to keep it upright. You know, pay attention, keep your head upright, and keep ocean water out of your ear. We always like to uh, to educate here, so if you have a pen, write that down. So, anyways, I went I went off topic there for a second. My Spanish is not good. Uh, you know, and like you know, you don't want to be disrespectful when you visit some of these places because I've been to Mexico and stuff before, and I've done like. You know, downloaded a bunch of stuff. I got the translate on my phone. I've tried to say it, you know, other than, you know, do cervezas por favor. You want to be able to say, you know, hello, how are you? Good morning. I know I learned, uh, yeah, I can't even remember it. <laughs> Jesus, my memory sucks. But I learned how to say, like, thank you, you're the best, and, you know, good morning and all that sort of thing. So let's take a shot at it here. We'll give a quick shout out to our, uh, to our newest download people in Spain. And then, uh, we'll get to some of the other stuff we have to get to. And believe me, I want to get to Matthew because, uh, this is going to be great. So yes, before we move on again, for my, um, for my Spanish listeners out there, I say, uh, gracias. Uh, mi podcast tiene descargas en España. Escuchas a Sam Roberts. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, right along with me, that means my podcast got down. Thank you. My podcast got downloads in Spain. Do you listen to Sam Roberts? Now, going back to some of the reasons why I love Twitter, and uh, I don't know, it just seems like less and less people are, are using Twitter nowadays or, you know, boycotting Twitter and all that. But there's just something about it, the group of people and the way that the flow works with gifts and this and chit chats and all that. It's just, I, I put up, um, I put up an article about a week or week and a half ago, and I had actually hadn't heard anything about this, even though I get news from a lot of different sports outlets and stuff. And I actually I didn't know that Patrick Reed, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a professional golfer, and uh, I, I didn't know that he had like uh, he had been known for being a, a, a for being a bit of an ass. So uh, when this came across, I was like, when I first heard it, I was like, okay, yeah, that's weird, but you know, celebrities, rich celebrities, do weird shit all the time. 
And then I, I was hearing that uh, uh, Patrick Reed allegedly has been, uh, you know, caught cheating, doing this, and he's horrible to people and all this. So when I heard this story and then I heard that, I was like, okay, well, this one's kind of funny. And I don't want to say it looks good on him, but uh, it, again, it just didn't really make the mainstream news at all. I had to dig a little bit for it. I guess he bought, I mean, the guy's, uh, I, I mean, you know, he's, the guy's a very successful athlete, which, I, you know, golf is not easy. Like, I golfed for a long time, and not so much in the last few years, just because, you know, it's time-consuming, and I'm always busy doing other crap. Again, golf is not easy. I know that firsthand. I know, like, a, a three-foot putt and all that sort of thing. Like, there, 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 is a, there is a skill set there. There is a hard work that you have to put into it, like you wouldn't believe, for anyone who's not that familiar with it. So, again, as far as an athlete goes, the guy's incredible. I mean, I think he's... Uh, they didn't say it in the article, but I think he's cleared well over 35 or $40 million on the tour, so... Congrats, but it looks like he's about a half million dollars poorer because he bought, I guess, after he won the Masters. This is also weird because I think he's had this car for about two years. So, again, if you Google the pictures of it, it's incredible. So he went and bought this uh, this limited edition Porsche where I think there's only like a 1,000 or 2,000 of them, which costs like roughly, I want to say, about 435 or 440,000. And then he paid for a custom paint job on it. There was like uh, the the master's jacket color, like that kind of dark green and, you know, like with a yellow kind of little finish on it and stuff. I mean, it, it was beautiful paint job, if you, you know, if you like forest master's green. And then buys this car now. I, I, I'll cut to the end. He he totaled it. If you get okay, Google, the, the car is completely written off. And it was like, I guess he didn't want anyone to know, but some uh, brilliant God knows what. God bless the Internet. God bless the international network for delivering news stories on Patrick Reed's car because I guess somebody matched up the VIN numbers and figured out that it was his car. The car is completely destroyed. I don't know if it was a if it was a DIY situ a DUI situation or if he just got into an accident or I don't know somebody dropped something on it. So you know you're, you're up with that. Apparently the paint job was upwards of like fifty grand because like those custom paint jobs on a car like that, you know, expensive. So. I guess he completely wrote that car off. But what's more amazing on it was, I think, again, I think he had it for two years. It only had 360 miles on it. So that's like barely, like, that's brand new. And uh, now it's sitting in a in a trash heap. And I guess there was a rumor that, like, it was being scrapped or somebody that was, like, a collector was going to pay, like, 100 grand for him. And, uh, again, if you think it's salvageable, it's not. Again, just Google uh, Patrick Reed uh, Porsche, and, and you'll see, like, there, <laughs> there's no, like, giving this thing a wash and, you know, pulling a few dents out. <laughs> and then going back to why I love Twitter. So I put that up and then a bunch of other people were sending me a whole bunch of other things about just golf course related stuff. There was one and it was actually up here. There was a guy or like along our major highway up here, the 401, that was completely wasted in the middle of the day golfing on the highway, uh, which I would advise against. You know, I remember um, during COVID when the, all the courses were closed because, uh, you know, I run in a lot of circles with a lot of different people. And as a friend of mine that's like a member of golf course, golfs every day and all that, was just like going mental because everything was closed. So he was just like golfing in the ravines and golfing in the park. And, you know, people would call the police on him. And he was like, you know, a lot of times when you're up to doing nonsense like that, the police don't really care. They just have to show up just so they can, you know, cross their T's and dot their I's. 
Yeah, so uh, he sent me another one, and this one, this one, it this makes no sense. And I know it's a Florida story, and people like to pick on Florida stories, but like a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in the last, um, you know, when we cover crazy news stories and all that, they they come from everywhere. Like there, there is no. I mean, if you Google, obviously Florida news, you're going to get Florida news. But I would highly suggest uh, looking uh, elsewhere for crazy news because I think this one came from. Okay, <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. This one is from Florida, but. <laughs> We've covered crazy news from elsewhere before. So, fifty-two-year-old Eddie uh, Orb Orbic Orbit Orbitage Orb. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. O R O B I T G or Orobitgen <laughs> was playing golf with his son at Harbor Hills Country Club in Florida when he encountered a man and his wife taking a walk on a cart path. Deputies say or Orobitgen took exception to the couple walking through the course, and uh, things escalated from there. In the arrest affidavit attained by uh, Orlando News 6, the victim says he was spit on by Orobiti and then struck with his golf club multiple times. He told police that he tried to fight back with his water bottle. <laughs> I don't know why they put that in there. It just makes the guy sound like an idiot. Uh, but sustained blows to his head and legs, in addition to believing he suffered several broken ribs. The victim was unable to provide a written statement, but gave a verbal one before being taken to a hospital. Deputies said he was covered in blood, uh, had several cuts, and a ripped earlobe, and possibly a broken jaw. Orobitgi was arrested and taken to Lake County Jail, and he's been charged with aggravated battery. Now, when you when it first said, I thought, okay, yeah, a fight on a golf course that probably happens all the time. No, apparently the other guy wasn't even golfing. He was just going for a walk, and this guy just went nuts on him for walking on the cart path. So if you want to go down to if you want to go down a pretty good uh, wormhole, and for a good read, just Google uh, golfing arrest. And again, it doesn't have to be in Florida, even though that one was. For some reason, golf brings out the absolute worst in people sometimes. Even though I particularly enjoyed it, I even used to go by myself sometimes because it was just like you're relaxing. You know, you're out in the fresh air. You know, I always enjoyed that kind of competition with yourself. The other the one that that came up when I was. Uh, talking about the uh, the article where the guy was drunk and golfing on the highway in the middle of the day which again just go to a park go to a golf course especially up here like they have golf courses you can go to that are like 30 bucks but i guess when you're drunk and the highway is right there why not uh why not tee one off and see what happens although that uh, that particular spot uh, again for those of you who don't know the highway 401 up here again a lot of people don't know it is the heavily most heavily trafficked highway in north america uh, which is a huge pain in the ass because, unfortunately, it's the way I have to commute. So on a good day, you're in there for about 45 minutes to an hour. On a bad day, it's usually about two hours. So you know what it is. Download the TRD podcast, hop into, hop into some traffic, and, you know, I'll, I'll help you pass the time. Me and Matthew Mangino are going to help you pass the time. But uh, when we were looking at the um, the the golf thing, the road, rage video, the road rage videos up here, insane. I mean, you see them everywhere, but a lot of the ones that came out of here lately, Again, I just it came across because uh, it was one of those exits that I always get off at. One guy uh, honking, honking at another guy, and the guy in front gets out, opens up his trunk, and pulls out a bat. And then the guy that was in the the back truck like opened up the back and pulled it like a log. And they were having like a sword fight in the middle of the highway. Like you don't understand, you're sitting in traffic the whole time. It's always it's it's hilarious when you see if they have a long weekend here or so. You know, we've all sat in long weekend traffic. And they're like, oh, you know, uh, a Masters Green limited edition Porsche was pulled over doing 220 miles an hour. 
we're always in awe thinking, where? Like, I, you've driven all around. There is nowhere you can go that fast here. Like, it, the traffic is that bad. These people must be finding, like, some, I don't know. It must be, like, far off or whatever. But, yeah, man, the the road, ra- the road rage here, you just hear one after another after another. It's... <laughs> It's funny. I've been a victim of that a few times because I, I used to, I mean, you guys know I, I drive a Navigator, but even before that, like I had bigger work trucks and stuff. So it's not to say that you can drive like a dick, but you can drive, if you're used to driving downtown and stuff like that, you can, you kind of got to be pushy. And uh, there was a few that came in by because there was a, there was a, a little plaza where we always used to stop at this pizza joint because uh, they had like these really good slices and they were done really quick. And uh, just because, the, the, again, we don't have it now, but back in the day, we used to have all the trucks logoed for advertising. And one. I just pulled out, and I guess, I, I, I uh, maybe I thought this guy was waiting for my spot, but I ended up cutting him off because I had the phone number on the side of the truck. He calls and he goes, uh, <laughs> why don't you uh, go practice driving instead of stuffing your big fat face? <laughs> I remember another one. It wasn't too far from there. It was like the hospital district. I was driving. Uh, I was driving up there, and I was eating a salad. And again, I guess I cut somebody out. Again, you guys are always amazed when you see what I look like because I'm a little bit overweight. But like, I eat a salad or two every day. I should probably mix it up with some exercise. But this guy calls in. This guy calls. I always let them leave voicemails because I'm driving. I really try not to talk on the phone while I'm driving for safety or because I don't want that ticket. Let's say it's for safety. And a guy calls, and he left this really long message, and he's going, "I, I just." <laughs> I just saw one of your guys driving down the street eating a fucking salad. I understand if you were eating like a banana or a hand pie, but a fucking salad? How was this guy driving eating a salad? And he went on and on. I think the message was like 45 seconds long just complaining that I had a salad. It was a Cobb salad, by the way, and it was delightful. One last one before I get off of uh, Road Rage. Uh, again, sitting right around the right around that place where the news story had the two guys sword fighting in the middle of the road with the baseball bats and wood. Uh, again, traffic was logged up there, and I was trying to get over to the, the express lane. So right when that lane kind of uh, starts, I just jumped over, and I saw in my side mirror there was a crane, like you know, ten or fifteen car lengths back. So I didn't technically cut him off. I mean, it might have been closer. So you know, pulled ahead from there. We're sitting in traffic, and I could hear him honking and all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, the phone rings. The phone rings. The phone rings. And no word of a lie, this guy called, like, God, I want to say 35 or 40 times. And he left a message every time. And every message was the exact same because he was like having a meltdown. He was super out of breath. So it's going, this fucking guy just cut me off. I am driving a 265,000-pound fucking crane, and this guy cut me off. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I'm telling you, at least, I would say at least 30 messages, and they were all the exact same. This guy just completely out of breath, just screaming at the top of his lungs. I would love to be able to play it for you, but... This was like four or five years ago. I had originally saved all these messages and just over time accidentally deleted them or switched phones or whatever it was. And I promise you, uh, the next time somebody calls me and yells at me or uh, anything, <laughs> the next time I screw up or somebody else screws up and I record it, I promise you I'll play it. Sorry, I had, I had one other thing. I just wanted to go back to where we were talking about golf. They, they set us up one time with this guy. I sort of knew him. The guy was a really good golfer. And he was a, he was a pretty good guy, too. His name was Ian. 
And it's just in particular again. He wasn't being a dick, but he he, he liked to to point out that he that, you know I have a handicap too, and uh, I've had two eagles in one game, and yada yada. Where it's like okay, you know it's I, I've heard before. I, I mean, I was always fortunate. I used to be able to golf with pretty cool people, but they always said that it, it's tough to find four people that you golf with that are just like relaxing and down to earth. Because I've I've had those. I've had the friends having the meltdown and smashing clubs and throwing shit in the water and. Being completely wasted by the ninth hole, so they set us uh, the, uh, me and a guy I used to work with, uh, and a couple of his friends, and like, it was like a friend of a friend sort of thing. And this guy's playing an absolutely just stunning game. I, he's shooting pars and birdies through about the first seven or eight. Like this guy's just an incredible golfer. So you know, <laughs> he gets up to like the eighth or ninth hole, and it was like a short par four. So he pulls out his driver. He's like, you know, I'm going to take you guys to school. I'm going to show you how it's done. He goes, this has got an eagle written all over it. So he gets up to the tee. He wallops the ball. When he looks up, he had shanked it. It bounced off a tree. It came back and hit him right in the eye. And it was one of those things. It was so quick. You didn't know what happened. You just heard this noise and you saw him drop. He never got to finish that game. He, he Afterwards, when he got up, I have never seen swelling like this, like, it looked like there was a ten. Oh, it looked like there was a golf ball, like growing out of the top of his eyelid, and he was like, "You know, you're in shock." And he's like, "How is it? Does it look bad?" And we're like, "No, no, it doesn't look too bad. <laughs> you don't have to go to the hospital right away." <laughs> uh, he turned out to be fine. So uh, yes, shout out to my man Ian. He never got to finish what was arguably one of the best games. Uh, one of the best games he ever played. But on the other hand, you know what I mean. Don't be a cocky. Johnny, or you'll be sorry. Speaking of Johnny, I had a whole bunch of other stuff I wanted to get to. Uh, I got uh, your emails. I know I put some of that stuff on Twitter about his top five favorite rock bands from the 90s. And I know you guys love it when we talk music. I, mean, I, I gotta tell you, ever since my first couple of episodes, since then when I talk music, you guys don't give me nearly, in a, nearly as hard a time as you used to. So, again, I got the best podcast listeners out there. I'd like to give you all a shout-out and a big hug. And a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to everybody. I don't know. I'm going to try for another episode on Monday morning. Tell God your plans sort of thing. So, yeah, I have all that. I promise you I'll get to the music and the, the rock and just the, the one of the weirdest list of top rock bands I've ever seen. But, uh, you know, he was dead serious, so... You send it to me, like I said, reach out to me any way you want uh, on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's the best. Again, just Google the Truth or Derek podcast. All my stuff comes up. Uh, send me a message on Twitter. Email me. Send me a message through the, the podcast thing. Doesn't matter. Reach out to me any way you want, and uh, we'll mix it up. Um, without further ado, let's talk to the man. All right, everybody. My next guest needs no introduction, especially since I've been talking about him all week. Uh, he's a lawyer, pretty darn good one at that. Uh, he was the district attorney of Lawrence County, Pennsylvania. He's an adjunct professor. Uh, he wrote a fantastic book called The Executioner's Toll. Uh, he's all over the place. TV, the internet, on the Law Crime Network, Court TV. He is the great Matthew Mangino. <laughs> How you doing, man? Well, I haven't, I haven't heard that uh, descriptive word ahead of Matthew Mangino, but uh, I don't mind it. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I've had a few people on here. Like I had the uh, the former assistant director of the FBI. And he's like, nobody calls me great. I was like, don't worry about it. You just have to say something great in the next hour. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I, I want to talk about the book. There's just a few other things I wanted to talk about ahead of time. 
And one of which is, and one of the reasons I, I really enjoy you when you're on TV and when you're when you're doing your interviews is like you have the rare talent, uh, and that is uh, delivering bad news in kind of an informative, easygoing way. What what is that uh, like? Uh, how do you do that? Well, you know, I, again, uh, I don't I don't know that anyone's ever told me that before. Uh, but um, you know, I've just found uh, in in my career uh, that if you're uh, demeanor is of a calm nature that you you kind of keep things uh, a little bit better under control and you control your own emotions now that doesn't mean that uh, you know I can't go off every once in a while uh, and uh, and <laughs> I, I certainly do uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, in in terms of effectively communicating um, that you're, you're better off doing it in a calm uh, manner than than in in one that's a little more animated. Well, I, I'm telling you right now, if, if the end of the world is coming, I want to hear it from you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's again, it's just with the job that with the job that you guys have, and anybody that's you know on television, you know, you get to work and they're like, okay, well, there's this court case, and there's this murderer, and this has gone down, and this is bad news, and this is jail, and then you you know you have to take all that, and you have to deliver it to the public. Like it can't be easy. So. Another question. Uh, my sorry, my another question I have for you. Um, why did you choose prosecution rather than defense? Because from what I've seen, the defense attorney seems to be where the money is. Well, you know, uh, originally I was uh, I did practice uh, criminal defense, and and I did that for a number of years, and then uh, you know I became you know an observer of the criminal justice system as well as a practitioner. And, uh, you know, I just thought that there, there were some things that we could do differently that maybe we could do better uh, in our county in terms of uh, prosecution and uh, crime prevention and things like that. And I, I was actually uh, the attorney for the county. So I, I represented the county in, in civil matters. And uh, there was a, a, uh, a four-term incumbent district attorney. Uh, he had been in office for 16 years, and he decided he he was going to run for a a fifth term. and And I just thought, well, you know, we need to go in a different direction. and And I ran in that came, <laughs> uh, campaign against a, a 16-year incumbent uh, and and won the race. And so it was really um, an extraordinary campaign. I, I thought it was a campaign that really focused on issues in a new direction. And and then I spent the, the next eight years as the, the DA of Lawrence County, uh, Pennsylvania. I like that. How you said you ran against them. Like it's a really nice way of saying that he's overstating his welcome and it's time for somebody new. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, he was a, a guy who uh, was conscientious about his work, but but he, he was, I think, looking at it from a perspective that was more in the 1970s and 1980s uh, than it was, uh, you know, in, in in the late 1990s. So so it was just a matter of, and, and one of the things that I was really, uh, you know, focused on was was crime prevention. How how can we be more involved in the community? Uh, you know, certainly when you're a prosecutor or a police officer, you know, you're always reacting to things. So, so you're, you know, something's already happened and, you, and you're trying to, you know, either, uh, you know, make somebody whole or bring justice to a situation. And I thought that, you know, certainly as a prosecutor, you could do more than that. You, you know, you could, you could be, uh, 
more involved in the public and trying to prevent crime, being involved with young people, being involved in schools. Uh, you know, so we did a lot of work in, in that regard with regard to to trying to prevent crime, uh, you know, trying to be involved in the community, trying to build trust with uh, all the different partners in the community. And, and, and I think, um, you know, it, it worked. I, I think it, it helped uh, increase the visibility of the prosecutor's office, but also I think it helped build trust in the community with regard to dealing with the police and with prosecutors. Now, that being said, when you were saying that you're, you're working with, with uh, police officers, do you think that right now they're kind of up against an impossible you know, situation just with the way the police work is now? Well, you know, the police work is, is very difficult work. And, and I have the utmost respect for uh, the men and women who, who are out there on the streets, um, you know, trying to uh, protect us, uh, trying to, uh, you know, find the bad guys and, 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 you know, weed them out of the community. Uh, but, but it is a tough job and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, public reaction, um, when the police, you know, cross the line. And unfortunately they do at, at times and it's not reflective. I don't think of a significant majority of police officers, but, um, you know, there are situations where, uh, the public and rightfully so is highly concerned with what they see, whether it's a videotape or what they, what they read about or hear about, uh, with regard to the police. And so, so that makes all police officers jobs a little more difficult. Um, and you know, I, you know, the thing that, that, uh, you know, that I think kind of sets us apart from, you know, where we were, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, is is the way that crime is committed. You know, crime, especially violent crime, seems to be so much more random. And I think that has an impact on clearance rates. You know, clearance rates are the ability of the police to solve crimes, whether it's a homicide, uh, whether it's a rape, whether it's it's a robbery. And you know those clearance rates. I, I think if you look across the board, have have uh, decreased dramatically in many major cities across the country. And I think part of that is is in the past a lot of crime was committed among people who knew each other. Uh, you know who who had some relationship. Uh, you know whether it was you know being involved in the drug trade or whether it was somebody that you knew. Who, who wanted to victimize you now. So it was, I think it was easier to, to solve crime at that time. Now, crime in, in some instances seems so random. Uh, you know, somebody drives by in a car and shoots people. Um, you know, somebody follows you after you go to the ATM machine and robs you in the parking lot of, a, of the grocery store. I mean, th those are random things. You don't know who those people are. They're, they're just they're victimizing you sort of randomly as an opportunity. And it makes it makes solving crime much more difficult because you don't have those relationships. And I think I think that has a, a, a um, an impact on the public's perception of police as well. So as you're saying, as crime changes, for example, like you're working in the prosecutor's office and I would imagine some of these cases come to you with a lot of holes in them. 
how do you, I mean, you know, I'm guessing you're not the kind, you seem like you're not the kind of person that passes the buck or just, you know, gets it down. How do you deal with a case that comes to you where you're like, I'm, I'm sure that I can get this, you know, taken care of, but there's a chance that I don't. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's always a problem uh, for prosecutors. I mean, certainly, you know, being a prosecutor, you have a lot of resources at your disposal, a lot more than, than, you know, most defendants do. Uh, because you have a police force, you have a budget, you have investigators in your own office, you have multiple attorneys who can do work for you. But the disadvantage of being a prosecutor is that, you know, you you have to take your witnesses as they come and your evidence as it comes. So, so you know, when you think about it, if you're investigating a murder that happened outside of a bar at 1.30 in the morning, most of your witnesses are not going to be maybe the most upstanding citizens in the community because they're <laughs> out in front of a bar at 1.45 a.m. in the morning. Um, you know, so, so, so that has an impact. And, and, and so, you know, as you can imagine, you know, people who, bad, who do bad things run with other bad people. So sometimes your witnesses are not the best witnesses. It's not like you're going to have uh, you know, uh, a room full of altar boys and nuns who are going to see a, a, a murder. So, so um, you know, that makes that makes the job uh, obviously more difficult. I, the other thing uh, that I think makes uh, the job of a prosecutor, especially now within within the last, you know, 10, 20 years, is that the expectation of jurors is so high. OK. We're, you know, people are used to watching CSI and and all these other uh, uh, police dramas and, and, and uh, uh, prosecutor dramas. And, and everybody thinks there should be DNA evidence in every case. I mean, DNA evidence rarely, you know, it, it's relevant in, in cases in which, you know, maybe there's a sexual assault and you have bodily fluids or there's a homicide and you have blood, um, you know, but it's not there all the time. But if you watch CSI, obviously CSI has a hundred percent clearance rate. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So 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 jurors they want they want DNA. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. So so you know prosecutors now have to spend time doing things that they didn't have to do in the past, and that is explaining to jurors why they don't have certain evidence. You know why they tested this evidence and it's there's nothing there. Um, it, it, it's just really changed the whole expectation so to speak of of jurors and people who are around the criminal justice system yeah but you know again we've talked to a lot of lawyers before when they're talking about uh dealing with a jury and dealing with jury boredom do you have that a lot as a prosecutor where you know you have to lay out a lot of facts and a lot of information but on the other hand if you sit up there and you talk for six hours you're going to lose their attention yeah, you know, that, you know, that's that's a delicate balance. Uh, there's no question about that. And and you know, having you know done a lot of commentary uh, for uh, the Law and Crime Network and for Court TV, you know, I, you get to see a lot of trials um, as well. And 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 I understand again, it's that same dynamic. You want to make sure that you're not left leaving any questions unanswered. Uh, for a jury, but sometimes that can be very tedious and, and you don't want to turn, um, you know, that jury or, or jurors off. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's incredible. You know, I, I was trying a case um, as a prosecutor in which I noticed 
that one of the jurors was nodding off. Okay. So the head's bobbing, the eyes are closing. And again, that's another delicate balance because I don't want to go to the judge and say, hey, this guy's sleeping. Wake and they call him in chambers and they say, well, you know, <laughs> Mr. Mangino says you're sleeping. I mean, that's that's not the way to win over a, a, a juror. But, you know, he he was continually nodding off. And, and you know, so many times, you know, I, I got up in my seat and I'm ready to, you know, to approach the bench and ask the judge. And so, you know, I don't do it, you know. And so the case goes back for deliberation. And, you know, they come out and you don't know who the jury foreman is until they come out. OK, so they come back out with their verdict and the judge says, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Foreman, do you have a verdict? And the and sleeper stands up. <laughs> so having having possibly slept through a, a significant portion yeah. of the trial, he decides <laughs> and the juror, other jurors decide he's going to be the jury foreman. He's our captain. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, fortunately, the case went my way. Uh, or you know, I don't, I don't know what I would have uh, done had. Uh, but, 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 yeah, the guy, the guy was the jury foreman, the sleeper. I told you when I introduced you in the show, you have such a, a relaxing, gentle voice. This is on you. <laughs> I also, it just, you were making me laugh when you were telling me the story about sometimes you don't get the best witnesses because, like, I can see the case landing on your desk and they're like, okay, Matt, a drug dealer killed another drug dealer and three drug dealers saw it. Those are your witnesses. <laughs> oh, that, that's what it's like. Uh, you know, I, I had the last three homicides. When I was a prosecutor, um, you know, when I, when I was a young guy, you know, I went to the local high school and, you know, I played, uh, you know, football and baseball. But there was a guy who was uh, a good basketball player um, and I didn't play basketball, but I but I knew who he was. He was a little older than me. And so the, the, there's a there's a homicide and the guy's name comes up. I said, well, I know him. You know, he he was. He was a, a witness and he's kind of lurking behind this bar doing whatever. Uh, and, and he sees this homicide. So fine. You know, I, I talked to him. And so we, we come back. There's another homicide a couple months later and I'm reading through the file and there's this guy's name again. They're, they're walking down the street in sort of a seedy neighborhood and there's a guy jumps out of the car. There's a shooting and he's walking up the sidewalk and he sees it. And, and so, you know, I got to meet with him again and we talk and, you know, he, you know, he was cooperative and he was helpful and everything. But he's at the wrong place at the wrong time too often. <laughs> right. So the final homicide when I was a prosecutor, there's a, a guy who is sitting in a car and is basically ambushed out in the middle of this baseball field. The nearest house is maybe 80 yards away. And this guy in the house, you know, here's a car running out in the ball field at night. So he's looking out the window, right? When somebody pulls up and, and, and whacks this guy. And, and so one of my assistants come in and he says, Hey, I just want you to take a look at this report. This happened, you know, the other night. And your friend witnessed this again. I said, <laughs> what? That's unbelievable. And, and lo and behold, in the report, he, so 
the same guy who I knew from back in high school witnessed the last three homicides uh, yeah. that occurred. And, 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 and really, when you, when you think about it, that's, that's part of the problem with being a, a prosecutor you know, in, in a uh, smaller suburban county outside of Pittsburgh. You, you know everybody. Uh, you know, you know, all the, you know, all the players, you, unfortunately, you know, the families the you know, the good guys and the bad guys. Uh, and it makes, it makes being a prosecutor, uh, difficult in those situations. See where I see, where I see the difficulty in that. And again, you're obviously, you're well more educated than I am. Is that if, if I look at that in the, in my head, I automatically go to guilt. I, I mean, we, we, a lot of true crime stuff and we've had like, uh, Cheryl McCollum was on the show at one time and we were talking about, uh, a bunch of, uh, younger kids that were, um, kidnapped and murdered. And some of them, like three or four of them would have one person in common that was there that was helping with the search and stuff like that. In my head, like it must be weird for you to automatically have to separate facts from the way that you feel. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, certainly one of the most difficult things um, that, that you do as a prosecutor and, and as a defense attorney, because, you know, oftentimes people are said, well, how, how can you represent somebody uh, if you think they did it or, you know, they did it. And, and really, you know, it's, you know, it's for, for me and I know many attorneys, it, it's not so much that, that I want to get uh, a guilty guy off. It, it's, it's about, you know, protecting the rights of that guilty person, but not yeah. only that protecting that person's rights, but generally protecting the system. So, so when somebody comes along who's been falsely accused, we still have those safeguards in there. They're going to protect that person who's been salt, uh, falsely accused. So, so you know, it, it's it's a problem, you know, as a prosecutor sometimes because you you, you know you have to set aside what you know about maybe somebody's family or what you knew about them personally uh, with what is now in front of you, and and, and it's a problem for uh, defense attorneys to to try to you know you know, convey that, hey, this is about the system. This is about all of our constitutional rights, not just this guy's constitutional rights. Yeah, when we, uh, well, first get, we've actually had him on a few times, Joshua Schiffer, a big fan of yours, by the way. Right, and, uh, yeah, he's a good and, guy. Uh, he was saying, because again, he, he had, a, he had a, a substance abuse problem for years, because he said, he goes, you know, like you said, you know, if you have somebody that's guilty, it's more about kind of to figure out the weight of the guilt and what an acceptable punishment is, and on occasion, you do, you know, you lose. On occasion, you have somebody that's innocent where you lose or they get too much or your, your plea doesn't work out. He said, you know, at the end of the day, he goes, the, the, it's an impossible job because nobody's going to be happy. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, um, and, and, you know, most of the time uh, in, in cases uh, in which you're trying to negotiate a plea, if, you know, if you can get to a point where nobody's happy, your client's not entirely happy. The prosecutor's not entirely happy. And you've been fighting through this, uh, you know, for days or weeks or months. You know, those are the times where you, you realize, you know, I, I've done I've done a pretty good job because everybody's <laughs> mad at me. You know, <laughs> and, and that's kind of the way I look at it. If everybody's upset when you finish your yeah, work that's, day, that's a, that's a win. That's a win. <laughs> everybody's mad. You come home and, and you tell your wife, well, how did it go today? Well, everybody was mad at me at the courthouse. Well, you must have done a good job today. That's a good day. 
Do you think you have, uh, you know, I, I, we've talked to a, a couple different people that have both done defense and prosecution. Do you think that gives you an advantage either way? Uh, I do. Okay. Because, because you've seen the process, you, you, you've, you've been involved in the process from, from both sides uh, of the table. And so, so you understand what's important to prosecutors uh, and you understand what's in, what's important to, to defense attorneys. And, and, and you, and you try to, you know, walk that sort of uh, narrow um, line and, and, and keep balance in there because, you know, there's just certain things that, that, that happen, um, you know, that I, just, I know that prosecutors don't like. Obviously, prosecutors, they don't like bad publicity because, you know, in most significant majority of jurisdictions across the country, they get elected. OK, uh, so, so they don't want something that looks like you're being soft or looks like you're being uh, unfair to somebody, you know, they, they want to, they want to, they want that balance that, that, that nobody wants to write about. So they don't get anything uh, written uh, poorly about them. And so, so understanding that, you know, you can talk more about the nuances of a case and, and, and you can kind of like subtly say, Hey, this might not look good. Uh, you know, can we do this or, you know, can we, can we, take it from this perspective. And I think, I think prosecutors, you know, appreciate that, 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 that defense attorneys are mindful of that, you know, well, well, still you're zealously representing your client. You're, you're, you're you know, when, when I was trying cases as a prosecutor, I always wanted to do the best that I could to make sure that the, that the defense put on their best case and didn't screw up. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this because I only want to try this case once. I don't want to try it I twice. I don't want to do, I don't, I don't yeah, do yeah, this I mean, again. I want, you know, so, so if it means I, during the recess, I have to tell you, you know, you should take a closer look at this or, you know, this, you know, watch this statement when this person's test. Because I, I, you know, I, I want it to be fair. I want somebody to have a fair trial, but I don't want to try it again. I don't want yeah. there to be a reason for appeal. And, and so I, I, so those are the kind of things I think you learn as as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney when you've worked both sides of the table. Uh, now, you bring up a great point there, because uh, I was going to ask you about some of the things that you've seen that are a waste of time in the legal system. Now, assuming that you've done your job and the defense attorney's done their job and the jury's done their job, and then it does get appealed and you have to do it again, what like how does that happen and what goes through your head when you know you have to do it again? Well, you know, the, the one thing is, if from the defense, you know, I've had a a a sort of dry run through this. Okay, I, I've already had an opportunity to do this once, and so now I can reflect on, you know, what was what was good about it, was what was bad. Obviously, you know, if if I have to try this case again, that means I lost the first time because yeah. the yeah. prosecution can't appeal. If I got a, if I got a, um, a not guilty verdict, so you know I'm yeah. getting I'm happy I'm getting a second bite of the apple for my client with having had a dress rehearsal, uh, and you know maybe I can I can correct things or maybe you know and a lot of times you you know after a, a verdict you have an opportunity to talk to jurors jurors tell you what they were hung up on and there's nothing wrong with that of course uh, to talk with jurors. They can tell you what they what they had a problem with, and and then maybe you can address those in a second trial. As a prosecutor, you know, 
I'm dragging because like, man, I already got a conviction in this case. I got to go back. I got to try it again. You know, nobody wants to play the same team twice because if you win the first one, you know, there's a lot of pressure to win the second one. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's just, yeah. it's a whole different dynamic. Um, so if you're, if you're a defense attorney, obviously you want that second bite of the apple, but if you're a prosecutor, you want it done right. And you want to do it one time and you want it to be over. Do you think some of these appeals are the biggest waste of time in the court system or do you think it's something else? Well, listen, uh, you know, I, I think I, I don't necessarily think that that appeals are uh, a waste of time. I mean, I, you know, I think that we have to zealously protect people's rights, as particularly when it comes to trials. And if there was an error that was made during trial, then then that person should have an opportunity uh, to go back and have uh, the evidence reviewed again uh, by another jury. Um you know, I, I and I, I think we talked about this or corresponded about this. You know, I, I was after I was district attorney for for two terms uh, in in Western Pennsylvania. The governor at the time, uh, Ed Rendell, appointed me to the parole board of Pennsylvania. So I spent a six year term on the parole board. Um, so I've had an opportunity to look at the criminal justice system from a lot of different uh, perspectives, and. Um, you know, if, if I were going to pick something in, in, in this system that I think is a waste of time, a waste of resources, and, you know, un, it's unnecessarily harsh, it would be t- technical parole violations. Okay. So there's two different types of parole violations. There's criminal parole violations where you're on parole and you commit another crime. Those kind of people should be dealt with sternly. Their parole should be revoked. They should face sentence on their on their new criminal charges and, and, and do whatever time that they lost on the street on the old charge. But the other type are technical parole violations. And that's a guy who didn't show up for a meeting uh, with his agent or, uh, you know, drank while he was on parole or used drugs while he was on parole. And. You know, to take those people off the street and put them back into a state correctional facility uh, or a local jail, uh, I think is counterproductive. It's a waste of resources and time. It, it, it um, you know, contributes to overcrowding our, our, our prisons. It, it's that to me is the most troubling aspect of the system right now. Yeah, that was actually my next question. It's funny you brought that up. Now, having worked on the parole board, like, wh- what is that system like? Well, it's it's different. I mean, it's different in, in different jurisdictions, but it, but in Pennsylvania, we have a nine person parole board, and and those nine um, members make decisions on uh, whether uh, violent or nonviolent prisoners. Um, get released to parole. So, so in Pennsylvania, we have what's called indeterminate sentencing. And that means that um, everybody has a maximum sentence and a minimum sentence. So, you know, if you're sentenced to four years, your minimum is two. Your two the, the, the minimum always has to be at least half of the maximum. Okay. And that's when you get your first crack at a parole board. Right. So at, after you've completed your minimum, you're entitled to a parole interview. There's no guarantees that you're going to get parole. Uh, it's not an automatic right to be paroled at your minimum. You're eligible for parole at that point. And that, so the parole board sees you and they make a decision. In Pennsylvania, we have guidelines. 
which are which are uh, you know evidence based guidelines. You know, you, we use actuarial tools and things like that to make uh, decisions on parole. We look at the conduct of a person while they were in prison, whether they've completed programming, and ultimately, uh, you know, if the if the if the uh, Department of Corrections supports their parole, you know, based on their behavior, and then a decision is made. Uh, with regard to parole based on those on those guidelines well the severity of the crime i would imagine as well right yeah so so there's there's um you know nonviolent uh, offenders you might have just one board member review a file and make a decision uh you know more serious crimes it may be a panel and then there are, then there are you know serious crimes like you know rape and murder in which you need a majority of the whole board uh to parole you as well. So, you know, being a parole board member is a grind because as you can imagine, you know, Pennsylvania has 40 some thousand prisoners, all those prisoners, but people sentenced to, to life without parole or, or people who are on death row, all those people are going to be eligible for parole at some point. So it's really a grind to get through those files and make those decisions. In fact, I just was reading about a study done with the New York State Parole Board. And they deny about 60% of all people who, who are eligible for parole at, at their minimum and really don't provide any real reason why they did it. Um, it's just no, go away. <laughs> and, and you just have to, you know, you have to figure out, well, didn't I interview well? Uh, was my behavior poor? Did I not articulate what I learned in programming? You know, so so as you can imagine, that that process, uh, you know, can really bog down um, inmates uh, and keep them for periods longer than they anticipated uh, they would be kept. Now, in your case, I would imagine that they would pull out the the nine person board when it was a more severe crime. Were were a lot of those? Um you know, everybody's kind of on the same side or did that a lot of times come down to like a five to four or a six to three vote? You know, the thing that's, that's interesting about that is when I was on the board and I believe it, it, it's still the same way, you don't, that, that inmate doesn't interview with the entire nine members. So they, they might interview still with just two board members or a board member and a hearing examiner. And then what happens is they, that those those two persons who conducted the interview will make a recommendation. And then the other board members will only review the file. Uh, so, so they're not really involved in the interview. They'll have notes about the interview and how the interview went, but they're still making a decision on this case without actually interviewing the inmate. And, you know, well, you know, some people think that's problematic. Um, it's virtually impossible to do it any other way unless you had yeah. a larger board. Yeah. That, that, that's wild. Cause I guess, you know, if I wanted to keep the person in jail and I was one of the two people that did the initial interview, I might press, you know, give, give you the notes on the file that would be obviously against the, uh, against the person that's trying to get parole. Well, yeah. So, so, so think about, you know, listen, I mean, we're all human. Okay. So, so think about human nature. Okay. So there's a two member panel that interviews this guy and they write up notes and say, this guy was a horrible interview. I mean, this guy is dangerous. <laughs> this guy, 
I mean, you know, I wouldn't, if I lived in the same town with him, I'd move away. I mean, if that yeah. gets to the other five, uh, to the other um, seven who are going to review it. You're going back to jail. Yeah. <laughs> you think they're going to say, oh, you know, Matt's an idiot. He says that about everybody. Yeah. They're not going to sign their name to that, to that file after somebody yeah, who, who talked to this person said, whoa, no. You could have went to New York and just kept everybody in jail. You'd have been fine. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, that's probably the easy way to do it. You don't. You, you probably don't worry at night that somebody you let out is going to um, do something bad to somebody. That's for sure. Because they're all in. <laughs> two, two more quick things before we get to the book. Um, your book. Um, and, and again, we normally don't talk too much politics on here. It just seems that there's a couple of uh, trials heating up now, especially with Donald Trump. So from a prosecutor's standpoint, how like in depth, how complicated is the state's case against him? Well, I mean, you know, he's got four criminal um, prosecutions going on right now. I mean, I just, I was, I took a, look, a quick look at it today. I mean, you, know, you have the, 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 the January 6th case. Um, you have the election in, uh, case in Georgia. You have the classified documents case. And you have a Manhattan, um, you know, criminal case with regard to, you know, paying off, um, you know, a, a porn star. Um, you know, so, you know, you got four <laughs> cases going against the former president of the United States. Um, you know, and then yesterday we, we, we see that the Colorado Supreme Court said that, you know, his name uh, does not have to be placed on the ballot because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does apply to the president, although we, we know that other states have, have found contrary to that. You know, so there, there's so much going on here at the same time as his numbers continue to get better and better from the political realm. So it's, it's I don't know how to make heads or tails of it, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, we were in the same, and we've talked about this a lot over a little while. Again, we don't get too much into politics, but we we were comparing it sort of to like the uh, the the RICO trial with Young Thug right now, where they're kind of starting at the bottom, hoping other stuff shakes out that'll rattle the top, that'll kind of hopefully everything meets in the middle. Yeah, I mean, and so, and that's that's all often you know uh, a strategy of prosecutors. So so you know here you have these different cases you've had people who've already pled guilty in these cases who, who are, are co-conspirators or are, are people who, who would have firsthand knowledge of some of this stuff. You know, are these people going to testify, uh, you know, a trial against Donald Trump? Um, you know, you, you have, you know, when you talk about Young Thug, you have, I think, 27 different defendants. Six of them are being charged or are being tried right now. You know, are, are you going to get people some of these other co-conspirators to, to testify in here or other people who've been indicted. Uh, you know, obviously cooperation among people who have uh, firsthand knowledge of criminal activity is very significant to any prosecution. Yeah. And again, uh, with a young thug trial, I didn't actually realize it was 27. So, you know, from a prosecutor's standpoint, how would you, like, how would you even approach that? Like, have you ever had anything like that land on your desk or is this like uncharted water? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of uh, uncharted water. I mean, obviously, when, when you have a RICO charge, you're going to have multiple people because 
you're talking about a criminal enterprise. I mean, um, in which in which you you know conspired uh, to to carry out, and and you know you're not going to have a RICO charge when it's one guy who's <laughs> the only person involved. Uh, so you have this you know racketeering uh, and, and uh, corrupt influences that takes multiple people. So so you're always as a prosecutor looking to see if someone uh, you know wants to to cooperate and and you know it's not uncommon to treat that person more lenient than you than you will some of the other um, co-defendants who are not cooperating. And of course, that can be used at trial, and that can be brought up during a cross examination. You know that you're you're getting some benefit, but of course, yeah, you you're getting some benefit, but you're also putting yourself in potentially in harm's way because because we know that these people, and it's been alleged that they have been engaged in aggravated assault, they've been engaged in murder, and so your life is at risk by your cooperation. So if you get some benefit from that. You know, is is there anything wrong with that? I don't. I don't think so. No, especially. You know what I mean? It's you. You have to. You know, pick up the leaves off the ground to figure out what's going on up top. It's like you know, and I and I agree. Like you know, you want to you want to cut a deal with some people, but then I, I, it just seems to me if when I the more and more I, I look at this case, it's just an impossible thing to try to unravel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, this case is is supposed to go on for months and months and months and you know, literally hundreds of witnesses. And, and as we talked about earlier, you know, one, one of the risks that you have is that you lose the jury, that, that, they, that they lose interest, that they can't connect the dots. Uh, you, know, it, you know, it's simple when you try a case for a week or even two weeks to connect those dots and, and, and to keep driving away at, at, at how these things are interrelated and keep it fresh in a jury's mind and then, you know, make those connections in a closing argument that hasn't that, that that evidence wasn't presented so long ago that they still remember and they understand how, yeah. how it all works together. When you try a case for six months and you're going to make a closing awesome. argument. Yeah. I mean, these people, even the ones who were attentive most of the time, and even if you didn't have a sleeper on your jury, they still <laughs> they're still not going to remember how to. I mean, some of these points are going to fall on deaf ears. They're going to be like. I mean, I need to look at a report or I need to read a transcript. I don't remember this. Yeah. I I could just see you, Matt, you're in court going, don't you remember on June 11th, we talked about the gun and <laughs> Sleepy in the trial going, what gun? I don't remember the gun. Yeah, you, you can't leave any stone unturned, even if it means you got to try the whole case again for the sleeper. <laughs> That's awesome. I could do this all day, but I desperately, I want to talk about the book. So the name of the book is The Executioner's Toll. And uh, very uniquely written, uh, or put, very uniquely put together. Uh, first of all, why did you write it? Well, you know, one of the things that, that um, brought me to write the book is that, you know, as a prosecutor, you know, I've tried uh, death penalty cases in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I've tried first degree murder cases as a defense attorney. Um, and, and one thing that always struck me about the, the death penalty was that whenever somebody talked about it or wrote about it, they, they did it from a certain bias. They were either for it or against it. So when you were when you were against the death penalty and you're writing about it, you're going to cherry pick all the cases that show the death penalty is flawed. 
And if you're in favor of the of, of, of the death penalty, you're going to cherry pick all the most heinous cases where people deserve to be uh, executed. And you're going to talk about those cases. What I thought I would do was I, I thought I would take a single year and look at all the executions in a single year. Um, you know, not cherry picking good cases from bad cases that represent, you know, any position with regard to death penalty and, and write about those cases, write about the the crime itself, uh, the investigations, the arrests, um, the prosecutions, the appeals, right right down to the last mills. And, and then let people who read the book decide whether or not they favor the death penalty or they do not. Um, you know, and, and throughout the book, I, you know, interspersed the, you know, constitutional arguments and, and all those issues that, that, you know, have rolled out of the, the death penalty over the years and, and, and really one that it presented as, a, as a, an unbiased look at the death penalty. Yeah, because, again, like we were talking about earlier, how quick you are to, to jump. You know, like you would assume if somebody, you know, rapes and murders children, they should automatically get the death penalty. But, you know, with some other crimes. And again, that was my another question I was going to ask you. If you could pick one or two other um, facts about what you've learned being a prosecutor and an author about the death penalty, uh, what would uh, surprise the public? Well, one of the things that, that, that has struck me about, you know, the modern death penalty. So, so when you talk about the death penalty, I mean, the, the death penalty has been around for ages. Um, and, and the death penalty was pretty prolific in this country you know, in, in the 30s and, and 40s. And then it, it started to wane. And, and, you know, that's when the decision with regard to um, uh, Furman versus Georgia, which struck down the death penalty in 1972, that, that came about. I mean, there were very few executions before that decision in 1972. And what the court said at that time was that the way that the death penalty was being imposed was arbitrary. Because there, there was sort of no set way to decide who the death penalty should apply to, you know, when it should apply. And, and so what happened after 1972 is they didn't say, all, and it disappointed many people, they didn't say that the death penalty was unconstitutional. They simply said it was arbitrary in the way that it was being uh, imposed. So states went back, they wrote their death penalty rewrote their death penalty laws. They put things in there like aggravating circumstances, which have to exist in order for the death penalty to, to apply. Uh, they, they said they bifurcated the trial. So, so that it wasn't a judge deciding death. It was the jury. So you have a trial and then you have a jury decide whether or not um, death, the death penalty should be imposed. And, and, and so they, they thought that what that would do with these aggravating factors and with juries that, that only the worst of the worst would be subjected to the death penalty. And, and that's really not, not the way that it's worked out. And, and I, I, I fear now that as in 1972, when the death penalty was arbitrary, the way it was imposed, I think now it's arbitrary in the way it's carried out. You know, when you have more than 2000 people on death row, and you execute 24 people like we did in 2023, well, I mean, how do you, how do you select those 24 people out of 2000? You're never going to catch up. <laughs> right. You know, you, know, you, you, you know, so people are being sentenced to death that have absolutely no chance of ever being executed. You know, and more people die of natural causes on death row now than, than do 
than do by execution. Uh, that's actually one of our uh, one of our listeners. When you knew that you were coming on, uh, John from actual Pittsburgh, your neighbor, um, and you brought up a good uh, a great point, saying it was arbitrary because a lot of these a lot of these cases where you're sentenced to death, it doesn't happen for 15, 16, 18, 20 years. So you've kind of done, you know, what life in jail would, what life in prison would be. And then you get the death penalty. Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, for 2023, the average uh, time spent on jail among the 24 people who were executed was 23 years. So, so each, so, so that's the average amount of time. So the other thing that, that I think people are not, realizing is, you know, there's still support for the death penalty out there. Although I think the most recent Gallup poll said that about 50% of people think it's unfair, there's still support for it. But what's interesting is it's not being imposed by juries across the country. Okay. So when I wrote uh, my book in 2010, there were 110, 110 death sentences issued in 2010. This year, there were 21. Only 21 juries across the country voted to sentence somebody to death. That's a dramatic, dramatic fall. Uh, you know, so, so what I think that represents is juries are not convinced that the death penalty is an appropriate punishment. Um, so, you, you know, whether you're taking a poll and you still find that more than 50% of people say, yeah, I think we should have the death penalty. I think in practice, people aren't sharing that 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 same opinion. Yeah, it's like when you go to the doctor and they say, you know, uh, how many cigarettes do you smoke in a week? And I'm like, you know, 10, when it's probably more like 50. People are be quick to say, you know, put them to death. But when they actually sit down and they think about it, and they see a person saying, you know, do I really want to end this person's life? I guess it's they flip the switch. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, um, you know, that's easy you know, for people, um, you know, to, to, to say, well, I'm for, or I'm against it because you haven't put any thought into it. You haven't, yeah. you haven't really looked at it. You haven't read about people, you know, so, so I, you know, the thing about 2010 that was interesting is, you know, you, you, you had a woman who was executed that year. You had a, a guy who was executed in Utah by firing squad. Why would you pick that one? <laughs> Well, you know, so so that's that's interesting because um, you know Utah has always had um, the firing squad as a, a a form of execution, and and it's part of the Mormon faith. I guess there's something about you know if you bleed, uh, then that's atonement. Uh, you know, so there's some there's some connection there, uh, you know, between the Mormon religion and and, and the firing squad. Uh, it, although there are some other states, Oklahoma and, and some others, who, who said now that that's going to be an alternative form of execution in our states because they can't get the execution uh, drug. Um, but but you know what what I thought was interesting, uh, uh, you know, uh, about 2010 is it real when you look at all these cases, you know, you you, you really see some. There's really cases where where you cry out for the death penalty after you read about this. And so, um, and then there's others where you say, wow, I mean, was this even first degree murder? I don't understand why this guy got executed. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's really, uh, interesting. You know, there, there's a guy, um, John David, uh, duty. Okay. He was the last person executed 
in 2010. Okay, he was the 46th execution. Now this guy was in prison. He was serving life sentences in prison, and he basically, you know, convinced his cellmate, who was a young guy, that you know what, if 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 I make it look like you know I'm torturing you, and the guard comes by, they'll split us up, and we'll both get our own cell. So the guy goes, oh, that's a great idea. Of course, the guy puts a cord around his neck and strangles him to death. Um, and, and the reason he did it is because he said, I want the death penalty. And I'm going to continue to kill until I get the death penalty. I mean, what do you do with a guy like that? Uh, I mean, you know, you know, unless he yeah, is yeah. executed, other people are going to be harmed. Yeah, no, that that is just... You know, again, another one of the unique uh, situations. That's what is uh, my next question was. Um, uh, with diving deep into all these, as you obviously did, in forty-six different cases that you covered, what uh, aside from that one, do you have one or two that sticks out? Well, yeah, there, there's another one that, that sticks out for me, and, and it's because it's kind of the other side of the spectrum. So, so there was a guy uh, named uh, Martin Grossman. He was in Florida. Um, you know, he he wasn't uh sort of like the brightest bulb so to speak in 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 the shed <laughs> and so but 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 he uh was uh, was on probation for some silly crime like you know um theft or something like that and he wasn't allowed he wasn't allowed to possess a gun so him and his buddy are out in the woods in in Florida and they're shooting a gun just target shooting and a game warden pulls up a woman and she asked them their names and, you know, they, he, she gets all the background information. She comes back. She goes, you know, you, you have this conviction. You're not allowed to possess a gun. I have to, I'm going to have to arrest you. The guy panics and he starts wrestling with her, actually pulls her gun out of her holster and shoots her. with it. I mean, when you look at the facts of a case like that, I mean, I'm not sure that that's even first degree murder. That's not planned premeditated murder. Now, of course, she was a law enforcement officer, uh, you know, but the whole circumstances to me don't even look like a first degree murder. Yet this guy was executed in Florida uh, for this murder. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, that's kind of the, the other side of the coin from John uh, David Duty. The, the one guy that, that struck me in, in the, in the 40s um, of these cases was a guy named Cal Colburn Brown, okay? And uh, he was from the state of Washington. And he kidnaps this woman by pretending, he's points at her tire, he's at the airport, pointing at her tire like she had a flat tire. She pulls over, he gets out, he throws her in his car, ties her up, tortures her, rapes her repeatedly at a hotel at the airport in Washington. And then he throws her in the trunk of the car and he's going to go catch a plane to meet some other woman that he met online. And right at the last minute, he says, well, I probably shouldn't leave her in the car because she'll make noise. So he goes in the car, stabs her to death, leaves her in the car. They find the car with blood leaking out of the trunk. That's how they discovered there's a body. He goes to California, meets this woman, ties her up and is going to do the same thing to her. Um, and so ultimately he gets convicted and when he, when they talk about, you know, his, you want to have a final statement and, and he's like, well, you know, I don't think this is fair that I'm being executed today 
you know, because, uh, you know, Gary Ridgway, the Green uh, River uh, killer, he he murdered 40 people and I only killed one. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, th th can you imagine? That's that's what Kel Colburn Brown decided he wanted to say for the last time before he left this role. I only murdered one person and he did, and Gary Ridgway murdered 40 and this isn't fair. So kind of gives you the uh, an insight into how these people think. You know what though? Again, you you illustrate a great point uh, from the person who shot the game warden in kind of a scuffle to a guy who probably would have been a serial killer but caught got caught after he killed one person to somebody who killed 40 people and they all get the death penalty. Like it, it it's a, it's a really strange line to walk. I think uh, that's what makes know. it interesting. Oh no, it's fascinating, believe me. The book is fantastic. Um now, we actually, we've had Kirk Nermy on before, and you're probably from somewhat familiar with the Jody Arias um, trial. Now, again, I, for a lot of people that don't know the, um, the ins and outs of that, uh, that, that was, you know, a multiple stabbings. Uh, she shot him in the head. Now, that actually ended up going to trial to um, figure out whether it was worth life in prison or the death penalty. What do you think about that type part of the system? Well, I mean, deciding whether or not to uh, apply the death penalty, I think, is the most important decision uh, that a prosecutor has to make. All right. And, you know, while we have some guidelines in terms of aggravating factors and bifurcated trial and automatic appeals to the state Supreme Court after conviction, I think they're really aren't any other guidelines. I mean, so, so, you know, as long as you can find one aggravating factor and, you know, you can try somebody and, and try to, to seek the death penalty. Um, you know, I, I think there should be more, there should be more defined sort of guidelines as to how you make that decision. Uh, you know, like on the federal level, you know, ultimately uh, a local, um, U.S. attorney has to get permission from uh, the attorney general's office. And there's a whole process where they have to uh, apply for that permission and explain their, their reasoning. You don't have to do that on a local level, on a state level. No, you know, if you want the death penalty, you seek the death penalty. If you have that aggravating factor and really the way aggravating factors have been expanded by, by legislatures, you can find an aggravating factor in every homicide if you want to. Um, you know, so it's not that difficult to decide I'm going to seek the death penalty. And I think there should be more to it. Yeah, kind of have like, you know, uh, uh, like a, a, I don't want to say another board, <laughs> but, you know, a group of people that can kind of just have a look at you. You're right. You know, if, if it's a violent crime that was premeditated with X amount of victims, it gets a death penalty, um, you know shot at it and if it's not it just it's a life in prison rather than you know tying up more court time and taking forever there, there, there's i mean a decision of that magnitude should be more than one guy sitting in his office you know staring at the ceiling and saying ah let's let's go for the death penalty. <laughs> uh two more quick things and i'll let you get back to your real life um no i'm having a good time this is great <laughs> thank you uh, in your eyes, what is the most powerful message from your book, if we haven't covered it already? Well, I, I think the most powerful uh, 
uh, you know, message is that, that, you know, the death penalty, it, it's not a black and white sort of decision. It, 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 it is, um, you know, th there's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot that goes along with it. And as we, as I demonstrated earlier, and just to give you an example, I mean, you know, some cases cry out for it. I mean, you know, uh, John David Duty should have been executed because he was going to kill again. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's, uh, you know, for someone to say, I'm opposed to the death penalty, you know, categorically opposed to it. Well, you know, where do you draw the line? Um, you know, Oklahoma City. I mean, where, you know, how, where, where do you make that decision? You know, the interesting thing about, about um, the Oklahoma City bomber was that, you know, at the time when he was sentenced to death, okay, the, the percentage of people who supported the death penalty was about, you know, 62%. So it was a, a pretty good majority. Yet, when people were polled, more than 80% said he should be executed. So 20% of people who told a poller that they don't support the death penalty supported it for him. Uh, you know, so when yeah, you it's... when you know about a case, when you're connected with it in some way, uh, and that's a, the best example because everybody in the country was sort of connected to that, you know, through the media, you know, your mind will change. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the power, the, the most important thing I think you take from the book is, hey, uh, you need to take a close look at this before you can say one way or the another how you feel about it. We always joke with all the lawyers and judges and stuff that we talk about. We're like, this is not a legal buffet. You can't come here one day and eat some of the food and come here the next and eat the other food. You have to make a decision. You can't be, you know, you can't be 50-50 on the death penalty and you can't tell people one way you are and one way you aren't. You have to educate yourself and make a decision. Yeah, no question. You, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, one more thing. Uh, we, again, we talk about food all the time on this show. So I had one question for you, being that you're in Pennsylvania and that I've been to Pittsburgh. Where is the best Philly cheesesteak in Pittsburgh? Well, here, here, here's what I can tell you. You know, Philly steak is obviously a Philadelphia um, deal. And, and, and Philadelphia has great cheesesteak. All right. It, but I'm in, I'm in Pittsburgh. And, you know, Philadelphia is kind of like a different state from the rest of us in Pennsylvania. You know, it's like their own, they got their own thing going on in Philadelphia. If you want to have a good sandwich, you have to come to Pittsburgh and get a Permanis sandwich. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Permanis sandwich. I haven't, but I've, I've been to both Peppies like three or four times. I've actually had the Roethlisberger, but I've also had their straight up Philly steak. And it was unbelievable. Well, listen, the Permani sandwich you got to check out. So Permani Brothers, uh, it's it's an old place that started down on the Strip District in Pittsburgh, you know, rough and tumble area. But their sandwich is Italian bread, thick slice of Italian bread on both sides. You have your steak or whatever you want on it. Uh, I like fried bologna myself. Fried bologna. French fries on the sandwich, coleslaw on the sandwich, cut the sandwich in half, got to use both hands. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, I personally believe, the best sandwich in America. Hermani Brothers. 
Hermani Brothers. I'm going to check that out next time I'm down there. Now, uh, just with our food, what are some of the strangest last meals uh, that you can uh, remember from your book? You know, it's it, it's interesting. Um, I, I was um, thinking about that when when I saw some of your uh, notes, and and um, you know, there's been some outrageous. You know, the first state that did this elaborate. Uh, final meal was, was Texas. So they started this back in the 20s that you could have this elaborate uh, meal. Uh, and now, ironically, Texas doesn't let you have a last meal. You have to eat whatever everybody else in the jail is eating that day. Okay, That's so above, if it's above. Salisbury steak, that's your last meal. Um, and, and you know, some states say, well, you know, the budget is 40 bucks. You can have anything you want for 40 bucks. Some places it's 15 bucks. It just depends. Um you know, but I, but one of the um, persons I was reading about uh, recently um, in a state where they still let you do whatever you want, it was it was incredible. I, he had I think he ordered like uh, 20 tacos, uh, you know, five Big Macs, uh, 10 bags of Doritos, uh, three big gulps from the 7-Eleven or wherever those um, come from, a half a cake, a half a pie. They said that the total... Uh, caloric uh, content of his final meal was 29,000 calories. So he figured, I don't know, maybe if, if I bulk up on some calories, I, I might be able to fight off this uh... lethal injection. <laughs> All right. Well, if I ever uh, end up in the uh, electric chair, I'm definitely going to ask for a fried bologna sandwiches from the Permani Brothers restaurant. <laughs> Which uh, I imagine if I got a few of those, I could probably get to 30,000 calories. I could try. Yeah. Well, you have to have a, maybe a couple Iron City beers will put you over the top. I can have more than a couple. Uh, his name is Matthew Mangino. The book is The Executioner's Toll. Go buy it. Uh, go buy it somewhere. It's everywhere. Uh, if you want more, go to www.mattmangino.com. Uh, follow him on, follow him on Twitter at Matthew T Mangino and look for him on TV. He's on Court TV. He's on the Law of Crime Network. He's everywhere. Again, Matt, thank you so much. Derek, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate it.